Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay. You okay? I mean, I just, uh, the recording hasn't started yet, so it's, that's good. Um, okay, so we were talking about, I, I introduced the idea of symbolic matching, and Symbolic matching, I've heard it say it's not really matching. Um, that's fine. But it can be set up such that say triangle means green and circle means red. Then the animal is presented with, and this is typically with pigeons, the animal is presented with so here's the, the key and he gets a triangle and then he gets a choice between red and green. And if he packs uh, green, he gets uh, food. If he packs red, he doesn't get it. And of course, as usual, you flip it around and it's controlled nicely for location, etc. So what you're doing here is you you are getting able to get one extra step. Now the working the reference memory part of this has to be then. It can't be matched to sample anymore, can it? Because you're not really matching. So the animal has to learn two reference memory rules. If triangle, peck green. If circle, peck red. Right? Now, as far as the working memory goes, this is where it gets interesting. Because what is the animal during the retention interval? Because remember, between the, the, the sample coming on and the two choices coming on, there's a retention interval. It might be five seconds, it might be ten seconds. If you don't want longer than ten seconds with pigeon, you have, have some trouble. You might think that's long, but remember they get 40, 50 trials a session, and there's a lot of interference that comes up. So now what's the animal remembering? Is it remembering heck red, heck red, heck red, or triangle, triangle, triangle? That's an interesting question. Right? Now I could ask you, if this was a human cognition experiment, I could ask you what you were remembering. You may not, it may not really be accessible to cognition, but I could ask you, let's say you were rehearsing. Right? If I give you a phone number, you might rehearse it in your head. In fact, a lot of times people do that, right? 949-2301, You rehearse it, you repeat it. So if I said to you, what were you saying to yourself? Triangle, 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 or green, 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 or whatever. You can tell me. Well, What's the pigeon doing? We can't ask it. It's going to reply with and just poop. So, this is what Herb Reutblatt did in his PhD thesis, actually. This is a beautiful, this is, this is so beautiful, this experiment. Uh, 1980, uh, I believe he did his PhD with Donald O'Reilly. Uh, and uh, Herb's at University of uh, Hawaii now. He shows up at conferences and mocks us all for not living in Hawaii. Now, this is not an exceedingly easy experiment, so I'm going to try to go as slow as I can, because um, as I need to. So it might take a long time, it might not. So it's symbolic matching. There are three samples, red, orange, or blue. And now there are three mappings. Red maps to a horizontal line, orange maps to a vertical line, 
and blue match with almost vertical lines. So I'll draw it on the board as well. So we've got red that maps to this horizontal. Orange maps to this vertical, right? Yep. And blue maps to an almost vertical line. Now, on any given trial, the animal's either given red, orange, or blue, and then it's given a choice between two alternatives. It could be horizontal and almost vertical, it could be vertical and almost vertical, you know, it's okay? So, on any given sample, it's one of the, on any given trial, one of these is a sample of the colors, and two of these are one of them being the correct. Are the choices. So you got that so far? Make sense? And at first you're thinking, what's Herb Reich doing? Is he just trying to be overly complicated? Well, he's doing this for a reason. If they make mistakes where the choices are one and two, they must be encoding retrospectively. In other words, they have to be looking back. We're going to look at their... You see this a lot in animal hunting, in cognition in general, animal human doesn't matter. You, you look at what the pattern of errors actually tell you a lot more than the correct. I was looking over here to be talking with somebody. There's nobody there. Uh, the pattern of errors tell you a lot more about the encoding process, the representation, a lot of times, than the correct answers to. Right? This is a very common thing. In fact, you'll often see. Um, at a conference or something like that, so I'm putting up their hands and get you look at errors because it really tells you something. So this is what Herb's doing, looking at errors. So if they're going to make a mistake when the choices are one and two, in other words, they're given red as a sample. Okay? So you're given red as a sample, but then your two choices are vertical and horizontal. If these are your two choices, that's an easy discrimination. Isn't it? <laughs> two lines cannot be more different than one being vertical and one being horizontal. But red and orange are very similar colors. So if the animal is encoding retrospectively, it might start to confuse in its memory red and orange. And you'd say, well, I wouldn't. I know, because we have separate words for red and orange. Pigeons just have... So they just have to remember the color. So if they're thinking back retrospectively, they might confuse red and orange. Do you understand the logic behind this? Do you see how beautifully freaking clever this is, by the way? It's really smart. That's really, really a neat experiment. Okay. Now the other thing is, how do we know if they're encoding prospectively? In other words, are they thinking forward? Well, if the choices are between two and three, so let's go with a different trial, and we're going to go with uh, orange being our sample, and we're going to go with horizontal, vertical and almost vertical. Vertical and almost vertical are easy to confuse. They're very simple. Blue 
orange are very different. If they make the mistakes here, they're encoding prostate. Again, you understand the logic of this. Because if you're going to make mistakes, a vertical one and an almost vertical line are very similar. But blue and orange are not similar. They're quite different. They're quite different. Okay, questions about this? You understand the logic behind the experiment and you understand the possible conclusions. Do you really? Oh, yes, please. Could you just go over the conclusions? Yes. No, it's a problem. I want you to understand this because, first of all, I want you to see how clever it is, but secondly, it's, it's just such a beautiful example of trying to get inside the representation of nonverbal animals. Two of the reasons that I'm showing you. Okay. The question is, are they remembering when they're when they're doing the task, are they remembering red, 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 red? Or are they remembering horizontal, 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 horizontal? Right? We know by the way that in fact pigeons do rehearse. We we know that, that they actually are in essence saying to themselves red, 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 horizontal, horizontal, horizontal. So the question is, are they doing it by thinking back to the color or thinking forward to the line range? So if the choices are between, if the sample's red, or it could be orange, it doesn't make a difference, but the choices are between horizontal line and vertical line, they should only make mistakes. They should only make mistakes. They're going to make more mistakes in this kind of task, with that kind of pairing, if the encoding is retrospective. Because red and orange are easy to confuse, horizontal and vertical are very difficult to confuse. On the other hand, if they're encoding prospectively, if they're saying horizontal, horizontal, then if you give them a choice between, if you give them, say, orange as a sample, or blue, does it make a difference? Orange and blue are very different. They cannot be confused. Or they could be, the animal could make a mistake, but it's just sort of a standard error rate. It's not about confusion then. But vertical and almost vertical are very similar. So if they're encoding prospectively, right, then you're going to see more errors in the second. Does that make sense then? That help? Good. This is an exceedingly clever idea. Prospectively, they would make, if they're doing prospective encoding, they should make fewer errors here. If they're doing prospective encoding, they should make lots of errors here. If they're doing retrospective encoding, they should make errors here. And they shouldn't make very many errors here, because retrospectively, red and orange pretty similar colors. Excellent. And why do they make almost no mistake in both or make one of them The part of what you have to do in an experiment like this is you have to pull the rotation <coughs> out that they start making mistakes. They will make mistakes. They're never going to be perfect with this. Yeah. But the question is you've got to get enough, enough errors that it's not just a sort of base error rate. Right? So you have to titrate this to a point where you, oh, I'm starting to get errors somewhere. 
uh, very typically, again, because you're looking at error rates a lot of the times, you don't want perfect performance. You can train them up to be perfect. In fact, you might even do this using, um, you would do this with a very short retention interval, maybe a second. Then you start pulling it out enough to start to get errors. And that's exactly what Herb did. So he started pulling the retention interval out. Question. He starts pulling the retention interval out, and that shows, in fact, that the animals switch. The animals actually switch encoding strategies. Assuming you have remembered, assuming you have the reference memory thing down, the mapping, because that, that's the reference memory part of this experiment. As soon as you have, assuming you have that down, the reference memory part is actually easy compared to the working memory part, it seems to me. So you, once the animal has this part down, the mapping, then errors are working memory errors. So the thing is, what's going to be the most accurate way to do it? Well, it's probably going to be to re you're not going to bring any error in, probably by remembering retrospectively, because you know exactly what the sample was. And in fact, at short retention intervals, they encode retrospectively. When you start pulling your attention interval out, the more likely the animal is to switch over to prospective encoding. So they actually dynamically change their strategy as you increase the retention interval. And that's really neat. So they actually, in essence, they know how their own memory works. Because if they can switch to a more efficient strategy, they do. Question on that. So they start out encoding retrospectively, and they switch over to prospective encoding. As you increase the retention interval. Okay. Using matching the sample can teach you a great deal. Um, with rats, you don't use matching the sample so much. You tend to use, do spatial tasks with rats a lot. Um, and the sort of all-time classic piece of gear is the eight-arm radial maze. To quote Bolton and Samuels of 1976, it is a maze with a central platform and eight arms radiating out like the spokes of a wheel. We've talked about the eight-arm radial maze before. <clears throat> I can tell you, in fact, this has been cited so many times uh, by anybody in this field that I imagine most of us can give you the whole citation. Fulton D.S. and Samuelson D. 1976. Remembrance of places past. Uh, spatial memory on the radial maze in the rack. Journal of Psychology and Behavior Processes 1, 1 to 15. And that's not because I'm some sort of fancy memory machine, because I, 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 I cite everything except for the video game stuff I do. This is what I'm up there. Everybody cites this paper. It was exceedingly important. I had cancer for 45, that sucks. Let's keep going. This spawned a whole bunch of work looking at spatial memory. And I've talked about this a little bit before, I think quite a bit, actually. 
right? So there's the maze looks like this. A arms, bat. The arms tend to be oh a meter long, but longer. They just it's we don't think of it as a maze per se. It doesn't typically the wall there aren't even the walls in the sides are out. It's just like a runway kind of affair. You can actually buy them now. Companies make them with little photo beams and stuff, but frankly, people just usually build these out of plywood. Because it's easy to build. Um, I've seen this, I've seen mazes with 32 arms. Uh, I've seen a, a crazy maze that, yeah, Bill Roberts made that had eight arms and then had four arms. Maybe you got to be Jay. I don't know why he did that a lot of times. Bill always pushes the limits, Bill Roberts. This is the piece of gear where, let's say, you bait four arms and you have four arms that are always unbated, then you have a reference memory part and a working memory part, and you at least you hit the campus and it hurts working memory. It's not reference memory. This has been used with humans. How do you do it with humans? Well, what do you do with humans is you'll make them run in the mix. Because you know what you would do? You would go right like that. Too easy. So what you do is you take a person in a, in a dark room and you put them in the middle and you put lights on and they have to point at lights. And then the light goes all uh, So they have to point at a light and that's considered busy. And then you look at the cardassian and you say, There are four lights! Star Trek? Nothing? Nobody? I cannot believe you guys. There's more next generation. You have to watch more Star Trek, not less. Because that was a great reference. They might be glad. Did you get it? Yes, yes. Okay, good chance. Yes, Chain of Command, part two. Yes. Yes. Of course, that was on episode six, uh, five and six of season six. Best episode ever. They hear me talk more about retro, uh, retro television. Tune into the podcast, best episode ever, at bestepisodeever.com. I'm curious, actually. <laughs> podcast I do with you guys. Anyway, this is an amazing piece of gear. It's been used with fish. Yeah, got now you, you need science with fish because you have to have water. Fish mm -hmm. do very poorly on this maze when they're in air. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, that's, that's my impression of a fish on a maze without any water. Be sharing that with friends. Um, it's been used with birds, and you need to have them fly. It's a very cool task because the animal, think about what the animal's doing, too. So we'll get rid of the build armor's extra arms here. This is one of those retrospective, prospective things, too, isn't it? Let's say all the arms are baited. Okay? Well, at first, all you have to remember is I gotta go down an arm. After that, you can start remembering where you've been. And then don't go down that arm. But once you hit, once you've been down four arms, so that's coding retrospectively. You should start encoding prospectively once you've been down four arms, because now I only have three left. I only have two left. I only have one left. That's easier than I was down this seven, this seven arms. And that's exactly what bats do. At about a little after four, and after four and a half choices, they switch from remembering where they were to remembering where they have to go. Animals are active, cognitive beings. 
that said there, and Bill Roberts actually did that work. Uh, we talked, in fact, very early on about uh, the <coughs> Suzuki Ojirinos in black. Um, that's the one that remember it had the uh, different cues all around, and then they rotated the cues. Turns out the animals are using a relationship between the cues to each other rather than using the cue at the end of each arm as a tag. It's a map-like representation that they have. Edward Tolman, we talked about cognitive rat maps and rats and men, Edward Tolman was right. They have a map-like representation. And it's a map-like representation that's actually based on geometry. So it's very much like that. It's not based so much on features, it's based on geometry. And I'll talk about that. In another one of my favorite experiments, talking to you that the rocks. Uh, and this is based on work by Warren Beck and one of his students, and I've never remember her name, and I feel horrible. But I do remember talking to you that Bill Roberts, I was Bill's postdoc, and this is Todd's master's thesis. What they did is they had a 12 arm radio mix. Yeah, 12 arm radio mix. Three kinds of food uh, Count Chocula. Rats love chocolate, rats love sugar, no better place to find it than a child's breakfast cereal. Rats really like cheese as well, so they use cheese. But they don't like it, and it's easy to determine this, you give them a choice. They don't like it as much as they like chocolate. And then finally, noise pellets, N-O-Y-E-S, not noisy, noise is a company. They're 45 milligram food pellets. Rats eat them. But they don't really eat them by choice. They eat them like, well, here's your reinforcement, you're probably kind of hungry. It's the same way you might eat McDonald's. <laughs> it's like, I don't really want McDonald's, but it is food-ish. It's food-like. So they got 12 arms, they got three pieces of chocolate uh, cereal, three pieces of cheese, and three noise pellets. Now, they also have three arms that have nothing on them. And it's the same arms each day. So there's three chocolate arms, three cheese arms, three noise arms, and three empty arms. So what do the rats do? First of all, that's the reference memory part. It's always the same arms, and of course it's changed depending upon the animal. If anybody knows about how to run design experiments and control for things, it's that. So what do the rats do in this situation? Well, they go to the chocolate arms first, the cheese arms second, the noise arms third, the, and getting them to go down those empty arms to have the experiment over takes a very long time. I remember when Todd was running this because I was the postdoc in the lab, and he asked me, what should I do? I said, start a stopwatch, and if they don't go down any of the arms at the end by five minutes, just take them out, because there's nothing you can do. They won't do it. They'll sit there in the center looking at you like, no, there's nothing left on the maze. I'm not going down these arms. And you sit there eventually and pee and crap. You know, so it's, it doesn't help anybody. So do you never go down here? Very often, rats, and they know it's an empty arm, they just won't go down. 
Yeah, because they've learned that there's no food there. Why should I go? Uh, some will, some sort of get the idea that if I go down there quickly, I get back to my home cage. I get weighed, I go back to my home cage, and I get a great big piece of Purina rat chow. Right? But most of them, they just sort of sit there looking at you like this. No, rear up, do on their back, find legs like this. So how do they Very cute, actually. Because they're always empty at each day. The same, the same three arms always had noise pellets, the same three arms always had chocolate, the same three arms always had nothing, and the same three arms always had cheese. But you set them in the center of this menu. Yes. Yeah. And they can't see the food. And they've never been up to empty one in the first place. Oh, no, they have at the very beginning. Sure, they went on all the arms at the beginning, and they eventually learn that those are the waste of time arms. Okay. Yeah. So they learn it. They get very good at this, as you'd expect, very quickly. They're a little bit hungry, and they like these kind of foods. Why not? Because they get very good at it very quickly. When I say quickly, I'm talking 10 trials. You can only run this once a day, by the way, because they get their full. You can't run them more than once a day. But it's a problem, because in 10 days, you can start testing. It's the one paradigm in animal sort of research where you can go as quickly as someone who's handing out surveys as you can do on this. Right? So whenever an honor student would come to the lab, we would say, if you, want, what, what, how you should work on spatial memory in rats, you'll actually collect data and time to do your thesis. Right? This is why I, for my honor thesis, I, I did six experiments for my honor thesis. Because I'm an idiot. Most of them sucked. <laughs> didn't deserve the grade I got. It was too high. I read it. It deserves about a 75. Well written. Ish. I think it was more like, you know, they ran rats for six months. It's a good I really honestly think they were thinking that. It really isn't that good. I tried to write it up for publication before I realized it was crap. Worked on it for like three weeks. There's nothing here. I wasted six months on the graduate school. Okay. It seems like they're chunking. You know what chunking in, in uh, human cognition, right? That's why whenever I mentioned phone numbers. And if I say the phone number of the universe is 949, I'll say that. 705-949-2301. You can even hear the way I pronounce it, that I break it into three bits. Instead of remembering ten numbers, I remember three. Oh, like three parts, three chunks. Right? And you know that you did that. If you ever go to a country that doesn't use the same kind of numbering system we have, right? Axel, how do phone numbers work in France? Um, we usually do 10 numbers, but by two numbers, like pairing two numbers together. Okay, so you got sets of five, right? Here we have what? Three, three, four. We actually really do two, 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 two. Okay. Two, two, so you got two, 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 five sets of two is what I mean. Yeah. Two sets of five. That's, that's the UK. Right? UK is it's five, then four, I think. Remember when I was in Oxford, I said, well, what's your phone number? I'll call you. Oh, zero, one, eight, six, five. No, 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 no. That, that's not a phone number. That can't be a phone number. It's a truck drive bus, you know, Nigel's plumbing. <laughs> and so I had a truck, the phone number's about this long. How do you people remember anything? You're driving the wrong side of the road. You're all confused. So, but we chunk things. Animals chunk things too. Now, first of all, it looks like they're chunky because they're remembering, oh, at first I go down the chocolate arms. But that isn't really chunking. That just shows preference. You know, we can test this though. Let's uh, randomly move it around. So let's take some of the cheese 
Let's take all the cheese and put it in empty arms. Let's take the noise pellets and flop, flip them around with the chocolate. First time they go down an arm they think it's a chocolate arm. Right? It's like, well, those are noise pellets. So they're kind of, you know, thrown off by that in the test trial. They go down another arm, but they don't go down any of the three arms now that are in that group. They go to another group. They finally find the chocolate ones. They, let's say they used to be noise pellet arms. They find the chocolate one, they go down one of the noise pellet arms, find it's a chocolate arm, they go down the other two old noise pellet arms, get all the chocolate. They're chunking. Oh, and you think, well, maybe what would happen if, and you know what happens if you just randomly move all the food around and don't keep it in groups? Their performance goes to shit. <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. Because they're not remembering 12 places. They're remembering four chunks of three arms. Yeah, that's how it works with cues. Like, uh, say we get a color for chocolate, a color for... No, they didn't do that because we know they don't tend to remember uh, things like that. But there were in the room, there were cues. There were posters on the wall. Things like that. You always do that. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, Todd McHugh put a bunch of posters of Carmen Electra on the wall. Classic. <laughs> it was 1997. He was 23. Yeah. Isn't that neat? That's pretty clever, right? How do we know that they're, the spatial part of this, they're doing this based on geometry? They're doing this based on where stuff is a map-like representation. Well, the person who figured that out is the smartest person I've ever met in my life. And his name is Ken Chang. This is 1986. And Ken is brilliant. Truly, truly brilliant. What he did, this is his PhD thesis. He had rats in a box that was rectangular. Okay. Uh, about the size of the top of one of these tables, really. Covered in sawdust. Covered in sawdust. And he had a cocoa puff buried in the sawdust in one corner. And rats are cuckoo for cocoa puffs. So let's say it was here. Okay? That's the correct, that's, that's where the food is. He puts, the rats learn this pretty quickly. And he breaks the sawdust and try and take a picture without peeing in it. Like it's, he can run an experiment with this guy. The rats go here, but they also make errors over here. To use an X, that's what I should say, zero. If they're going to make errors, the errors are here. They don't make errors here, and they don't make errors here. Well, think about it. Geometrically, those are exactly the same in those two places. Now, in this place, there are no cues. There's a single light bulb over top of this. That's it. And this has raised up sides. So you're thinking, well, he's forcing me to use geometry. Yeah, well, he is in that case. But they don't make errors here or here. And that's because, look, it's long right, short left. Now, look. Sorry, long. Long right, short, yeah, long right, short left, long right, short left. They were called rotation errors, not reflection errors. The reflections are here. Here, they don't make these mistakes. You might think, well, what happens if he gives him a cue? Well, he did. He took one of the walls, 
and made it black, and the other three walls are white. They ignore that cube. They ignore that cube. They simply use the geometry of the box. So Ken's done a bunch of work like this in everything from uh, people to rats to ants to bees. Ken's amazing. He's also, he's so smart that the first time you hear him talk, you won't understand what he's saying. And it's not because he doesn't speak English or something. He just like, no, I have no idea. He was a postdoc in Bill Roberts' lab when I was an undergrad. And I remember when I got to grad school a couple years later, he got a job at U of T. And I remember the first time he gave a talk, everybody at the end went, I have no idea what he's talking about. And I said, it's okay, it takes a couple of talks. You have to understand how Ken thinks. He's thinking in a whole other world. Uh, Ken's at Macquarie University in Australia. Um, and he's amazing. It's, it's so clever. He's so clever, it's unreal. So we know it's geometry. I've based a lot of my human work on this, actually. If those of you guys that know Stephanie Tannen from a couple years ago, her honors thesis was like this, except no one was digging in any sawdust. It was a spinning rectangle on the computer screen. So we know it's geometry. It's, a, it's like a map. And then they apply the features to the map later. It's very neat. In human cognition, what we do a lot of the times, we can do a little a neat thing called directed forgetting. So what, how do we do this? Very simple. I, I give you items, a list of words or whatever, and for some of them I say, forget. And other ones I say, remember. So between giving you the item, so I, I show you a picture of a, a, a chair, and I say, forget. And I show you a picture of a circle, and I say, remember. And then I test you, and you remember the ones that I told you to remember way better than the ones I told you to forget. It's really easy, right? We can do this with pigeons. We do match the sample, and we give them another signal. So between the sample and the test, I give them a signal. And if I give them, let's say, I don't know, a triangle means I'm not going to test you on this. And if, and if I give you a circle, it means I'm going to test you. In other words, forget and remember. And in fact, this is work that Peter Trolley is I'm going to look this up because it's going to drive me crazy and I'm going to spell his name. Anyway, what Peter's done, he's on my Facebook friends list. Let's look this up. Um, what do you look for friends there? Okay, you are. There he is. Oh, I've really misspelled it. Okay. U-R-C-I, no, U-R-C-U-I-O-L-I, my god, or children. actually finds out that the pigeons, when you tell them not to remember, they don't remember. When you tell them to remember, they remember. Directly forget. Pretty clever. 
I think that's exciting. That's what it's acclamation for. Because, you know, I went on and on about, oh, well, we have to look individual species, etc. Yeah, obviously, all the small work with the birds and that, but we also have to take care of the idea that there's going to be a lot of commonalities. Alice Rim and Sarah Shuttleworth did something that, to me, this is, the, this is another really neat experiment. Um, Alistair was Sarah's postdoc. So, this is, called, this is a meta-memory experiment. This is actually pigeons telling you that they know the contents of their own memory. Now, humans, we can do this. This is easy, actually. How many, don't, and don't name it, but how many people here know the capital of Afghanistan? How many of you here, if I gave you a multiple choice test, are confident you could tell you to pick the right one? Okay, so what you have that you have that you know that you know it, but you don't, you can't pull it out of your head right now. It's Kabul, by the way. So I would give you a choice like Kabul, Islamabad, I don't know, a couple other places in that area, Abbottabad, and Abbottabad, that's what Islamabad is, Kabul. Zero Dark Theory. God, what part of that movie? Because it's really just a first-person shooter movie. <laughs> I hope it's better than that. My son wants to go to it. Are you taking me to Zero Dark Thirty in December? Does <laughs> <laughs> it come out of December the 12th? I said, no, he didn't know the same way. Because you saw that he knows. He knows. So you know what's in your own memory. You can be confident. In fact, I can even, the beautiful thing with human stuff like this, it's almost always geographical knowledge. Because that's something... Most people don't know capitals of countries off the top of their head, but they usually can say, yeah, I'm pretty sure how confident are you? And in fact, your confidence level correlates almost like, really beautifully at least, 0 0.8, 0 0.9, up to 1 sometimes, with how accurate you are. You really do know the contents of your own memory. It's meta-memory. Well, do pigeons? Well, they should be able to, right? If they can actually switch strategies, if they do directed forgetting, it makes sense they could do this. So what Sarah and Alistair, I should say Alistair and Sarah, I guess, first author, is they first train animals up on a standard red-green action to sample. Right? So just, you know, if red, pet red, if green, pet green. So they get the choice. Now, then they introduce, once the animals are good at this, which, you know, five-second retention interval, they, they get up around 90% pretty quickly. They then introduce this. So you got red, Then the animals have a choice. And I think these were the choices. I'm not sure if they were. And this isn't symbolic matching. This leads to, I think. I think this is right. It's something like this. This is access to food. So the feeder comes open for 10 seconds or 3 seconds. Okay? Red. And then what's called the safe key. In other words, no, I'm not answering that one. Thanks. You'll get something. Or, yep, I'm going to take some chances. It's like the gamble key. That's the memory test key. 
Yep, get it right, making a lot more food. So if you get this right, you're going to get three. The expected, and actually, that's got to be wrong then. It's got to be five. The expected value of these two keys is equal. Because if you get this half the time, you get five seconds. If you get this, you get five seconds. Okay? So, because if you're just guessing here, you're going to get half time right, half time not right, you get 10 seconds, none. You have five seconds access here, you always get five seconds. So you should only pick this, the test key, if you know you're right. Because there's no reason not to. The amazing thing is, first of all, the animals. I remember when Alistair presented this idea. Uh, Alistair's a behavioral ecologist. Uh, and he presented this, and I forget even what he was talking about with behavioral ecology. We all went, dude, you're doing metamemory in pigeons. And he never had taken a psychology course in his life, and he said, I don't even know what that means. Because he was a biologist. His service class pointed in evolution of ecology and psychology. And then we explained it to him, and he said, is that cool? And we said, yes, no one's done it. So he did this experiment. So first of all, how do you test it? Well, sometimes when you give them a triangle, you make them do a test anyway. <laughs> I wasn't going to test you on that. Yes, I am. And they aren't very good at this. Now, you might think, well, that's kind of cool, but did they... My friend Rob Hampton came up with a very elaborate, sort of almost Skinner-like reason why that was meta-memory. Because we were trying to, because this is going to be kind of controversial, we wanted to make sure it was correct. So he was talking to the lab one day, and then Sarah figured out, you know what you do? You start pulling your retention interval out. The choices to the memory test key should drop off as the test gets harder. Right? If the test starts to get hard, you should... Say, I don't want to test. Right? I'll all take the safe one. And that's exactly what happens. As you, the retention rule gets pulled out, they start going over here. They stop making this pack. And then now, maybe when you pull the retention rule up, you test them anyway, and they're ready to chance. They just, they knew they didn't know. This is kind of like the definitions, right? It's like, what if I made you do one? It's probably if your final exam is like, no, you have to do the one on fixed ratios. Even though I said you didn't have to. Pretty nifty. Questions on that? Say that, I think that's a pretty cool term. Um, this is something that my friend from a lot of students, Craig Keynes and I, and also just me, myself, my own, did. You heard about, you know about priming? You know about priming a human memory? This is when I give you a list of words, and one of the words is just samples and keys and stuff everywhere. I give you a list of words, and one of the words is coffee. Right? And then I give you a memory test, and it's called word fragment completion. If you've seen the word coffee, you're more likely to fill in the blanks correctly for coffee than you are for, say, cocoa. 
assume they don't have cocoa in it. I always spell it wrong. But they're both brown breakfast liquids. So I take the two of those. Just because they're seeing more coffee. Do you need to have memory to do this task properly? No, but it helps. It primes you. So you need to actually have memory. Now, the thing is, uh, Indonesian people show totally normal priming. This also lasts for very long periods of time. This lasts for a week. But if I was to ask you what was on the list, the chance of you remembering the word coffee a week later is really small. But your ability to fill in coffee correctly is not dependent on if you remember the word coffee. It's called implicit memory. So what I did is I thought, well, what I'll do is I'm going to do, because this is really hot in human cognition, and people always said, this is evolutionarily old. The ability to detect prey items uh, should be something we've been able to do since before we were us, and it should be shared in all kinds of animal species. And I said, well, there's an interesting comparative question for you to answer. So, I presented, I taught pigeons that they, what they had to do. First thing I did is I, I taught them did just plain old concept learning. Pictures of cats and pictures of cars. And this, you know, this was not hard. The pigeons learned this pretty easily, and I could use unique stimuli, a problem they learned, and half the pigeons learned it. The S plus was cats, the other half learned the S plus was cars. Now I'll introduce into the, into the task a warning stimulus. And this was just a picture of something around the lab. They were pictures like, the pictures actually of people in the lab, there were pictures of other pigeons, there were pictures of equipment, pictures of a chalk brush. I remember, I just went around the camera and took pictures. Then I give the animals, they detected this 20 times, that far 20. Then they get a choice between Plus one and S minus one. So let's say it's cats. So it's the S plus, so they get a cat. If they pick the cat, they get food. If they pick the, the car, they don't get food. We go to the next trial. And now, warning stimulus two comes up. They get a choice between S minus two and S plus two. They, again, just introducing this warning stimulus thing, telling them, oh, we're getting ready for a, they get a choice. That was easy. They learned that. Finally, what I ended up doing is I brought, sometimes, I started blocking these out, so finally, now the next step, these are blocked out. So half, they only see half the picture, randomly. So I was like, if there was a cat, there's a cat picture on the screen, but half of it, Blocked out. Okay? It's a picture fragment. Okay? So now they have to identify is that a cat or a car by missing part of it. It's just like the word coffee missing some letters. So now let's see. One of the warning stimuli, let's use S plus 3 as the warning stimulus. But not blocked out. Four, 
the subscript just tells you what picture it is. Okay? That ain't no problem with that, by the way. No problem. Now, on the next trial, explaining this, by the way, at the very in my insert grant was really complicated. One, two, so three. Now the question is, do they categorize better with this blocked out pack that they've seen before than they do on trials when they don't haven't seen the picture before? Just like you will recognize the word coffee and fill it in more quickly, uh, more accurately, I'm sorry, than if you haven't seen that word before. Yes. Um, it's even true if we start using S minuses here as warning stimuli. They're filling in, they're priming, they're completing the picture, and then they're picking the other picture. Now, the thing about priming is it lasts really, really, really long. So what we did, what Craig Keynes did, and this is this was Craig's honors thesis with me uh, back in Newfoundland. Craig hold the retention interval out. For individual pictures, remembering individual pictures, they have that great at. 15, 20 seconds. Have I seen that or not? For priming, three minutes. No decrement. So in other words, what this showed is that they were remembering Using like implicit memory, the priming lasted at least three minutes. And we haven't we didn't go there any further. And I don't have a lab here. So is it evolutionarily old? Yeah, it probably is. It's old enough that it shows up in humans and their and, and, and you know living dinosaurs, pigeons. Common ancestors that's pretty long time ago. So you can do stuff that is like the stuff that's done with people. But you do it for the right reason. Is it the case that we would expect chunking? Yes. We would expect that. That's an efficient use of memory. Will we expect the record forgetting work? And will we, will we expect that it would also work to do, uh, what's his name, uh, meta memory? That's like, interesting, I couldn't remember. Will we expect priming of implicit memory work? Yes, we would. Because those are things that any effective, efficient memory should work that way, be it a human memory, be it non-human memory. So instead of being, I wonder if rats do what people do, this is, here are some characteristics that we would expect to show up in any memory system. So this makes sense to me, this kind of work. This isn't just like, do we show primacy and recency effects? Who knows? Let's see. The hardest part I had about doing this work, by the way, was that everything in the human stuff is all about consciousness. So they say that you have to, you're, you're consciously aware of the word coffee, or you're not consciously aware, but you still, it still shows priming. I thought, I can't do that. I just had to do a task analysis and look at it and say, how's it work? All right, questions about that?
real today. All right, on Monday, I will talk about some wrap it up little themes of the fun presenting and start asking questions. podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.